Book Five, Chapter Thirty One of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Five, Rose, Chapter Thirty One. It was a November afternoon. London lay wrapped in rainy fog. The atmosphere was such as only a Londoner can breathe with equanimity, and the gloom was indescribable. Meanwhile, in defiance of the inferno outside, festal preparations were being made in a little house on Camden Hill. Lamps were lit, in the drawing-room chairs were pushed back, the piano was open, and a violin-stand towered beside it. Chrysanthemums were everywhere. An invalid lady in a best cap occupied the sofa, and two girls were flitting about, clearly making the last arrangements necessary for a musical afternoon. The invalid was Mrs. Laban. The girls, of course, Rose and Agnes. Rose, at last, was safely settled in her longed-for London, and an artistic company, of the sort her soul loved, was coming to tea with her. Of Rose's summer at Burwood, very little need to be said. She was conscious that she had not borne it very well. She had been off-hand with Mrs. Thornburg, and enjoyed one or two open skirmishes with Mrs. Seaton. Her whole temper had been irritating and irritable. She was perfectly aware of it. Towards her sick mother, indeed, she had controlled herself. Nor, for such a restless creature, had she made a bad nurse. But Agnes had endured much, and found it all the harder, because she was so totally in the dark as to the whys and wherefores of her sister's moods. Rose herself would have scornfully denied that any whys and wherefores, beyond her rigid dislike of Windale, existed. Since her return from Berlin, and especially since that moment when, as she was certain, Mr. Langham had avoided her and Catherine at the National Gallery, she had been calmly certain of her own heart-wholeness. Berlin had developed her precisely as she had desired that it might. The necessities of the bohemian student's life had trained her to a new independence and shrewdness, and in her own opinion she was now a woman of the world, judging all things by pure reasons. Oh, of course she understood him perfectly. In the first place, at the time of their first meeting, she had been a mere bread-and-butter miss, the easiest of praise for any one who might wish to get a few hours' amusement and distraction out of her temper and caprices. In the next place, even supposing he had been ever inclined to fall in love with her, which her new sardonic fairness of mind obliged her to regard as entirely doubtful, he was a man to whom marriage was impossible. How could anyone expect such a superfine dreamer to turn breadwinner for a wife and household? Imagine Mr. Langham interviewed by a rate-collector, or troubled about coals. As to her, simply, she had misunderstood the laws of the game. It was a little bitter to have to confess it, a little bitter that he should have seen it, and have felt reluctantly compelled to recall the facts to her. But, after all, most girls have some young follies to blush over. So far the little cynic would get, becoming rather more scarlet, however, over the process of reflection that was quite compatible with the ostentatious worldly wisdom of it. Then a suddenly inward restlessness would break through, and she would spend a passionate hour pacing up and down, and hungering for the moment when she might avenge upon herself and him the week of silly friendship he had found it necessary, as her elder and monitor, to cut short. In September came the news of Robert's resignation of his living. Mother and daughters sat looking at each other over the letter, stupefied. That this calamity of all others should have fallen on Catherine of all women! 
Rose said very little, and presently jumped up with shining, excited eyes, and ran out for a walk with Bob, leaving Agnes to console their tearful and agitated mother. When she came in, she went singing about the house as usual. Agnes, who was moved by the news out of all her ordinary sang-froid, was outraged by what seemed to her Rose's callousness. She wrote a letter to Catherine, which Catherine put among her treasures, so strangely unlike it was to the quiet, indifferent Agnes of every day. Rose spent a morning over an attempt at a letter, which, when it reached its destination, only wounded Catherine by its constraint and convention. And yet that same night, when the child was alone, suddenly some phrase of Catherine's letter recurred to her. She saw, as only imaginative people see, with every detail visualised, her sister's suffering, her sister's struggle that was to be. She jumped into bed, and, stifling all sounds under the clothes, cried herself to sleep, which did not prevent her next morning from harbouring somewhere at the bottom of her a wicked and furtive satisfaction that Catherine might now learn there were more opinions in the world than one. As for the rest of the valley, Mrs. Leyburn soon passed from bewailing to a plaintive indignation with Robert, which was a relief to her daughters. It seemed to her a reflection on Richard that Robert should have behaved so. Church opinions had been good enough for Richard. The young men seemed to think, my dears, their fathers were all fools. The vicar, good man, was sincerely distressed, but sincerely confident also, that in time Ellesmere would find his way back into the fold. In Mrs. Thornburg's dismay there was a secret, superstitious pang. Perhaps she had better not have meddled. Perhaps it was never well to meddle. One event bears many readings, and the tragedy of Catherine Ellesmere's life took shape in the uneasy consciousness of the vicar's spouse as a more or less sharp admonition against wilfulness in matchmaking. Of course Rose had her way as to wintering in London. They came up in the middle of October while the Ellesmeres were still abroad, and settled into a small house in Lerwick Gardens, Camden Hill, which Catherine had secured for them on her way through town to the Continent. As soon as Mrs. Leyburn had been made comfortable, Rose set to work to look up her friends. She owed her acquaintance in London hitherto mainly to Mr. and Mrs. Pearson, the young barrister and his aesthetic wife whom she had originally met and made friends with in a railway carriage. Mr. Pearson was bustling and shrewd, not made of the finest clay, but yet not at all a bad fellow. His wife, the daughter of a famous Mrs. Leo Hunter of a bygone generation, was small, untidy, and in all matters of religious or political opinion, emancipated to an extreme. She had also a strong vein of inherited social ambition, and she and her husband welcomed Rose with greater effusion than ever, in proportion as she was more beautiful and more indisputably gifted than ever. They placed themselves and their house at the girl's service, partly out of genuine admiration and good nature, partly also because they divided her a profitable social appendage for the Pearsons socially were still climbing, and had by no means attained. Their world so far consisted too much of the odds and ends of most other worlds. They were not satisfied with it, and the friendship of the girl violinist, whose vivacious beauty and artistic gift made a stir wherever she went, was a very welcome addition to their resources. They fated her in their own house. They took her to the houses of other people, Society smiled on Miss Laban's protectors more than it had ever smiled on Mr. and Mrs. Pearson taken alone. And meanwhile Rose, flushed, excited, 
and totally unsuspicious, thought the world a fairy tale, and lived from morning till night in a perpetual din of music, compliments, and bravos, which seemed to her life indeed, life at last. With the beginning of November the Ellesmeres returned, and about the same time Rose began to project tea-parties of her own, to which Mrs. Laban gave a flurried assent. When the invitations were written, Rose sat staring at them a little, pen in hand. "'I wonder what Catherine will say to some of these people,' she remarked in a dubious voice to Agnes. "'Some of them are queer, I admit, but after all those two superior persons will have to get used to my friends some time, and they may as well begin.' "'You cannot expect poor Cathy to come,' said Agnes, with sudden energy. Rose's eyebrows went up. Agnes resented her ironical expression, and with a word or two of quite unusual sharpness, got up and went. Rose, left alone, sprang up suddenly, and clasped her white fingers above her head with a long breath. "'Where my heart used to be there is now just a black, cold cinder,' she remarked with sarcastic emphasis. "'I am sure I used to be a nice girl once, but it is so long ago I can't remember it.' She stayed so a minute or more. Then two tears suddenly broke and fell. She dashed them angrily away, and sat down again to her note-writing. Amongst the cards she had still to fill up was one of which the envelope was addressed to the Honourable Hugo Flaxman, Ninety St. James's Place. Lady Charlotte, though she had afterwards again left town, had been in Martin Street at the end of October. The Labans had lunched there, and had been introduced by her to her nephew, and Lady Helen's brother, Mr. Flaxman. The girls had found him agreeable. He had called the week afterwards when they were not at home, and Rose now carelessly sent him a card, with the inward reflection that he was much too great a man to come, and was probably enjoying himself at country houses, as every aristocrat should in November. The following day the two girls made their way over to Bedford Square, where the Earlsmiths had taken a house in order to be near the British Museum. They pushed their way upstairs through a medley of packing-cases and a sickening smell of paint. There was a sound of an opening door, and a gentleman stepped out of the back room, which was to be Ellesmere's study, on to the landing. It was Edward Langham. He and Rose stood and stared at each other a moment. Then Rose, in the coolest, lightest voice, introduced him to Agnes. Agnes, with one curious glance, took in her sister's defiant, smiling ease and the stranger's embarrassment. Then she went on to find Catherine. The two left behind exchanged a few banal questions and answers. Langham had only allowed himself one look at the dazzling face and eyes framed in fur cap and boa. Afterwards he stood making a study of the ground and answering her remarks in his usual stumbling fashion. What was it had gone out of her voice? Simply the soft, callow sounds of first youth? And what a personage she had grown in these twelve months! How formidably, consciously brilliant in look and dress and manner! Yes, he was still in town, settled there indeed for some time. And she, was there any special day on which Mrs. Laban received visitors? He asked the question, of course, with various hesitations and circumlocutions. Oh, dear, yes. Will you come next Wednesday, for instance, and inspect a musical menagerie? The animals will go through their performances from four till seven and I can answer it that some of the specimens will be entirely new to you." The prospect offered could hardly be more repellent to him, but he got out an acceptance somehow. 
She nodded lightly to him, and passed on, and he went downstairs, his head in a whirl. Where had the crude, pretty child of yesteryear departed to? Impulsive, conceited, readily offended, easily touched, sensitive as to what all the world might think of her and her performances. The girl he had just left had counted all her resources, tried the edge of all her weapons, and knew her own place too well to ask for anybody else's appraisement. What beauty! Good heavens, what a plomb! The rich husband Elsmere talked of would hardly take much waiting for. So cogitating, Langham took his way westward to his Beaumont Street rooms. They were on the second floor, small, dingy, choked with books. Ordinarily, he shut the door behind him with a sigh of content. This evening they seemed to him intolerably confined and stuffy. He thought of going out to his club and a concert, but did nothing, after all, but sit brooding over the fire till midnight, alternately hugging and hating his solitude. And so we return to the Wednesday following this unexpected meeting. The drawing-room at number 27 was beginning to fill. Rose stood at the door receiving the guests as they flowed in, while Agnes, in the background, dispensed tea. She was discussing with herself the probability of Langham's appearance. "'Whom shall I introduce him to first? she pondered while she shook hands. "'The poet? I see Mamma is now struggling with him. "'The cellist with the hair? Or the lady in Greek dress? Or the esoteric Buddhist? What a fascinating selection! I had really no notion we should be quite so curious.' "'Mithros, they wait for you,' said a charming, golden-bearded young German, Viola in hand, bowing before her. He and his kind were most of them in love with her already, and them all the more so because she knew so well how to keep them at a distance. She went off, beckoning to Agnes to take her place, and the quartet began. The young German aforesaid played the viola, while the cello was divinely played by a Hungarian, of whose outer man it need only be said that in wild profusion of much tortured hair, in Hebraism of feature, and sparthy smoothness of cheek, he belonged to that type which nature would seem to have already used to excess in the production of the continental musician. Rose herself was violinist, and the instruments dashed into the opening allegro with a precision and an entrain that took the room by storm. In the middle of it, Langham pushed his way into the crowd round the drawing-room door. Through the heads about him he could see her standing a little in advance of the others, her head turned to one side, really in the natural attitude of violin-playing, but, as it seemed to him, in a kind of ravishment of listening, cheeks flushed, eyes shining, and the right arm and high-curved wrist managing the bow with a grace born of knowledge and fine training. "'Very much improved, eh?' says an English professional to a German neighbour, lifting his eyebrows interrogatively. The other nodded with the business-like air of one who knows. Joachim, they say, war durabar entzucht, and did his best with her, and now Dame has got her, naming a famous violinist. She will make fast progress. He will stamp upon her tricks. But will she ever be more than a very clever amateur? Too pretty, eh? And the questioner nudged his companion, dropping his voice. Langham would have given worlds to get on into the room, over the prostrate body of the speaker by preference but the laws of mass and weight had him at their mercy, and he was rooted to the spot. The other shrugged his shoulders. "'Well, with a pretty woman, who behaupt it doesn't mean business. It's society, the dukes and the duchesses, the ruins all the young talents.' 
This whispered conversation went on during the andante. With the scherzo, the two hirsute faces broke into broad smiles. The artist behind each woke up, and Langham heard no more, except guttural sounds of delight and quick notes of technical criticism. How that scherzo danced and coquetted, and how the presto flew as though all the winds were behind it, chasing its mad eddies of notes through listening space. At the end, amid a wild storm of applause, she laid down her violin, and proudly smiling, her breast still heaving with excitement and exertion, received the praises of those crowding round her. The group round the door was precipitated forward, and Langham with it. She saw him in a moment. Her white brow contracted, and she gave him a quick, but hardly smiling, glance of recognition through the crowd. He thought there was no chance of getting at her, and moved aside amid the general hubbub to look at a picture. "'Mr. Langham, how do you do?' He turned sharply and found her beside him. She had come to him with malice in her heart, malice born of smart and long, smouldering pain. But as she caught his look, the look of the nervous, short-sighted scholar and recluse, as her glance swept over the delicate refinement of the face, a sudden softness quivered in her own. The game was so defenceless. "'You will find nobody here you know,' she said abruptly, a little under her breath. "'I'm morally certain you never saw a single person in the room before. Shall I introduce you?' "'Delighted, of course, but don't disturb yourself about me, Miss Loban. I come out of my hole so seldom. Everything amuses me, but especially looking and listening.' "'Which means,' she said with frank audacity, "'that you dislike new people.' His eye kindled at once. "'Say, rather, that it means a preference for the people that are not new. There is such a thing as concentrating one's attention. I came to hear you play, Miss Laban.' "'Well?' She glanced at him from under her long lashes, one hand playing with the rings on the other. He thought, suddenly, with a sting of regret, of the confiding child who had flushed under his praise that Sunday evening at Muirwell. "'Superb,' he said, but half-mechanically. "'I had no notion a winter's work would have done so much for you. Was Berlin as stimulating as you expected?' "'When I heard you had gone, I said to myself, "'Well, at least now there is one completely happy person in Europe.' "'Did you? How easily we all dogmatise about each other,' she said scornfully. Her manner was by no means simple. He did not feel himself at all at ease with her. His very embarrassment, however, drove him into rashness, as often happens. "'I thought I had enough to go upon,' he said in another tone, and his black eyes, sparkling as though a film had dropped from them, supplied the reference his words forbore. She turned away from him with a perceptible drawing up of the whole figure. "'Will you come and be introduced?' she asked him coldly. He bowed as coldly, and followed her. Wholesome resentment of her manner was denied him. He had asked for her friendship, and had then gone away and forgotten her. Clearly what she meant him to see now was that they were strangers again. Well, she was amply in her right. He suspected that his allusion to their first talk over the fire had not been unwelcome to her as an opportunity. And he had actually debated whether he should come, lest in spite of himself she might beguile him once more into those old lapses of will and common sense. Coxcomb! He made a few spasmodic efforts of conversation with the lady to whom she had introduced him, then awkwardly disengaged himself, and went to stand in a corner and study his neighbours. Close to him, he found, was the poet of the party, 
got up in the most correct professional costume, long hair, velvet coat, eyeglass and all. His extravagance, however, was of the most conventional type. Only his vanity had a touch of the sublime. Langham, who possessed a sort of fine-ear gift for catching conversation, heard him saying to an open-eyed ingenue beside him, oh, "'My literary baggage is small as yet. I've only done perhaps three things that will live.' "'Oh, Mr. Wood,' said the maiden, mildly protesting against so much modesty. He smiled, thrusting his hand into the breast of the velvet coat. "'But then,' he said in a tone of the purest candour, "'at my age I don't think Shelley had done more.' Langham, who, like all shy men, was liable to occasional explosions, was seized with a convulsive fit of coughing, and had to retire from the neighbourhood of the bard, who looked round him, disturbed and slightly frowning. At last he discovered a point of view in the back room, whence he could watch the humours of the crowd without coming too closely in contact with them. What a miscellaneous collection it was! He began to be irritably jealous for Rose's place in the world. She ought to be more adequately surrounded than this. What was Mrs. Laban? What were the Ellesmeres about? He rebelled against the thought of her living perpetually among her inferiors, the centre of a vulgar publicity, queen of the second rate. It provoked him that she should be amusing herself so well. Her laughter, every now and then, came ringing into the back room, and presently there was a general hubbub. Langham craned his neck forward and saw a struggle going on over a roll of music, between Rose and the long-haired, long-nosed violoncellist. Evidently she did not want to play some particular piece, and wished to put it out of sight, whereupon the Hungarian, who had been clamouring for it, rushed to its rescue, and there was a mock fight over it. At last, amid the applause of the room, Rose was beaten, and her conqueror, flourishing the music on high, executed a kind of pas seul of triumph. Victoria, he cried, now damn for the conditions of peace. Miss Rose, will you kindly tune up? You are as mock-beaten as the French at Sedan. Not a stone of my fortress, not an inch of my territory, said Rose, with fine emphasis, crossing her white wrists behind her. The Hungarian looked at her, the wild poetic strain in him which was the strain of race asserting itself. But if the victor bows, he said, dropping on one knee before her, if force lay down his spoils at defeat of beauty? The circle round them applauded hotly, the touch of theatricality finding immediate response. Langham was remorselessly conscious of the man's absurd chevelure and ill-fitting clothes. But Rose herself had evidently nothing but relish for the scene. Proudly smiling, she held out her hand for her property, and as soon as she had it safe, she whisked it into the open drawer of a cabinet standing near, and drawing out the key, held it up a moment in her taper fingers, and then, depositing it in a little velvet bag hanging at her girdle, she closed the snap upon it with a little vindictive wave of triumph. Every movement was graceful, rapid, effective. Half a dozen German throats broke into guttural protest. Amid the storm of laughter and remonstrance, the door suddenly opened. The fluttered parlour-maid mumbled a long name, with a port of soldierly uprightness, there advanced behind her a large, fair-haired woman, followed by a gentleman, and in the distance by another figure. Rose drew back a moment, astounded, one hand on the piano, her dress sweeping round her. An awkward silence fell on the chattering circle of musicians. "'Good heavens!' said Langham to himself, 
Lady Charlotte Winstay. "'How do you do, Miss Leyburn?' said one of the most piercing of voices. "'Are you surprised to see me? You didn't ask me. Perhaps you don't want me. But I have come, you see, partly because my nephew was coming.' And she pointed to the gentleman behind her. "'Partly because I meant to punish you for not having come to see me last Thursday. Why didn't you?' "'Because we thought you were still away,' said Rose, who had by this time recovered her self-possession. "'But if you meant to punish me, Lady Charlotte, you've done it badly. I'm delighted to see you. May I introduce my sister? Agnes, would you find Lady Charlotte Winstay a chair by Mamma?' "'Oh, you wish I see to dispose of me at once?' said the other imperturbably. "'What is happening? Is it music?' "'Aunt Charlotte, that is most disingenuous on your part. I gave you ample warning.' Rose turned a smiling face towards the speaker. It was Mr. Flaxman, Lady Charlotte's companion. "'You need not have drawn the picture too black, Mr. Flaxman. There is an escape. If Lady Charlotte will only let my sister take her into the next room, she will find herself well out of the clutches of the music. Oh, Robert, here you are at last. Lady Charlotte, you remember my brother-in-law. Robert, will you get Lady Charlotte some tea?' "'I am not going to be banished,' said Mr. Flaxman, looking down upon her his well-bred, slightly worn face, aglow with animation and pleasure. "'Then you will be deafened,' said Rose, laughing, as she escaped from him a moment, to arrange for a song from a tall, formidable maiden, built up the fashion of Mr. Gilbert's contralto heroines, with a voice which bore out the ample promise of her frame. "'Your sister is a terribly self-possessed young person, Mr. Ellesmere,' said Lady Charlotte, as Robert piloted her across the room. "'Does that imply praise or blame on your part, Lady Charlotte?' asked Robert, smiling. "'Neither at present. I don't know Miss Laban well enough. I merely state a fact. No tea, Mr. Ellesmere. I have had three teas already, and I am not like the American woman who could always worry down another cup.' She was introduced to Mrs. Laban, but the plaintive invalid was immediately seized with terror of her voice and appearance and was infinitely grateful to Robert for removing her as promptly as possible to a chair on the border of the two rooms, where she could talk or listen as she pleased. For a few moments she listened to Fräulein Adelman's veiled, unmanageable contralto. Then she turned magisterially to Robert, standing behind her. "'The art of singing has gone out,' she declared, since the Germans have been allowed to meddle in it. "'By the way, Mr. Ellesmere, how do you manage to be here? Are you taking a holiday?' Robert looked at her with a start. "'I have left Muirwell, Lady Charlotte.' "'Left Muirwell?' she said in astonishment, turning round to look at him, her eyeglass in her eye. "'Why has Helen told me nothing about it? Have you got another living?' "'No, my wife and I are settling in London. We only told Lady Helen of our intention a few weeks ago.' To which it may be added that Lady Helen, touched and dismayed by Ellesmere's letter to her, had not been very eager to hand over the woes of her friends to her aunt's cool and irresponsible comments. Lady Charlotte deliberately looked at him a minute longer through her glass. Then she let it fall. "'You don't mean to tell me any more, I can see, Mr. Ellesmere. But you will allow me to be astonished.' "'Certainly,' he said, smiling sadly, and immediately afterwards relapsing into silence. "'Have you heard of the squire lately?' he asked her, after a pause. "'Not from him. We are excellent friends when we meet, but he doesn't consider me worth writing to. His sister, little idiot, writes to me every now and then, but she has not vouchsafed me a letter since the summer. 
I should say from the last accounts that he was breaking. He had a mysterious attack of illness just before I left, said Robert gravely. It made one anxious. Oh, it is the old story. All the Wendovers have died of weak hearts or queer brains, generally of both together. I imagine you had some experience of the Scoire's queerness at one time, Mr. Ellesmere. I can't say you and he seem to be on particularly good terms on the only occasion I ever had the pleasure of meeting you at Muirwell. She looked up at him, smiling grimly. She had a curiously exact memory for the unpleasant scenes of life. "'Oh, you remember that unlucky evening,' said Robert, reddening a little. "'We soon got over that. We became great friends.' Again, however, Lady Charlotte was struck by the quiet melancholy of his tone. How strangely the look of youth, which had been so attractive in him the year before, had ebbed from the man's face, from complexion, eyes, expression. She stared at him, full of a brusque, tormenting curiosity as to the how and why. "'I hope there is someone among you strong enough to manage Miss Rose,' she said presently, with an abrupt change of subject. "'That little sister-in-law of yours is going to be the rage.' "'Heaven forbid!' cried Robert fervently. "'Heaven will do nothing of the kind. "'She's twice as pretty as she was last year. "'I'm told she plays twice as well. "'She had always the sort of manner that provoked people one moment "'and charmed them the next. "'And to judge by my few words with her just now, "'I should say she had developed it finely. "'Well now, Mr. Ellesmere, who is going to take care of her?' "'I suppose we shall all have a try at it, Lady Charlotte. "'Her mother doesn't look to me a person of nerve enough.' said Lady Charlotte coolly. She is a girl certain, absolutely certain, to have adventures, and you may as well be prepared for them. I can only trust that she will disappoint your expectations, Lady Charlotte, said Robert, with a slightly sarcastic emphasis. Elsmere, who is that man talking to Miss Laban? asked Langham, as the two friends stood side by side, a little later, watching the spectacle. A certain Mr. Flaxman, brother to a pretty little neighbour of ours in Surrey, Lady Helen Varley, a nephew to Lady Charlotte. I've not seen him here before, but I think the girls like him. Is he the flaxman who got the mathematical prize at Berlin last year? Yes, I believe so. A striking person altogether. He's enormously rich, Lady Helen tells me, in spite of an elder brother. All the money in his mother's family has come to him, and he's the heir to Lord Daniel's great Derbyshire property. Twelve years ago I used to hear him talked about incessantly by the Cambridge men one met. Citizen Flaxman, they called him, for his opinion's sake. He would ask his scout to dinner, and insist on dining with his own servants and shaking hands with his friend's butlers. The scouts and the butlers put an end to that, and altogether, I imagine, the world disappointed him. He has a story, poor fellow, too, a young wife who died with her first baby ten years ago. The world supposes him never to have got over it, which makes him all the more interesting. A distinguished face, don't you think? The good type of English aristocrat. Langham assented, but his attention was fixed on the group in which Rose's bright hair was conspicuous. And when Robert left him and went to amuse Mrs. Laban, he still stood rooted to the same spot, watching. Rose was leaning against the piano, one hand behind her, her whole attitude full of a young, easy, self-confident grace. Mr. Flaxman was standing beside her, and they were deep in talk. Serious talk, apparently, to judge by her quiet manner and the charmed, attentive interest of his look. Occasionally, however, there was a sally on her part, 
and an answering flash of laughter on his. But the stream of conversation closed immediately over the interruption, and flowed on as evenly as before. Unconsciously, Langham retreated farther and farther into the comparative darkness of the inner room. He felt himself singularly insignificant and out of place, and he made no more efforts to talk. Rose played a violin solo, and played it with astonishing delicacy and fire. When it was over, Langham saw her turn from the applauding circle crowding in upon her, and throw a smiling interrogative look over her shoulder at Mr. Flaxman. Mr. Flaxman bent over her, and as he spoke Langham caught her flush and the excited sparkle of her eyes. Was this the someone in the stream? No doubt, no doubt. When the party broke up, Langham found himself borne towards the outer room, and before he knew where he was going, he was standing beside her. "'Are you here still?' she said to him, startled, as he held out his hand. He replied by some comments on the music, a little lumbering and infelicitous, as all his small talk was. She hardly listened, but presently she looked up nervously, compelled, as it were, by the great melancholy eyes above her. "'We are not always in this turmoil, Mr. Langham. Perhaps some other day you will come and make friends with my mother?' End of Book Five Chapter 31